Welcome to the launch edition of the second season of the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast. I'm Andrew Beard of Memoria Bond, and today's guest is none other than Professor Damien Hughes. Damien is an international speaker and best-selling author who combines his practical and academic background within sport, organisational development and change psychology to help organisations and teams to create a high-performing culture. He is the author of eight best-selling business books, including Liquid Thinking, Liquid Leadership, How to Change Absolutely Anything, How to Think Like Sir Alex Ferguson, and The Five Steps to a Winning Mindset. He is the co-host of the High Performance Podcast, an acclaimed series of interviews with elite performers from business, sport, and the arts, exploring the psychology behind sustained high performance. His innovative and exciting approach has been praised by Sir Richard Branson, Muhammad Ali, Sir Terry Leahy, Sir Roger Bannister, Tiger Woods, Johnny Wilkinson, and Sir Alex Ferguson. Aside from all of this, he is an incredibly kind and inspirational person who generously took time out of his busy schedule to take part in the podcast. So much time, in fact, we need to bring it to you in two parts. So in part one, you'll learn about Damien's own progression journey, the clues behind his success, and even how he nearly took himself to the point of breakdown through, in his own words, his desire to achieve more. And in part two, you'll learn about how we can progress lives in a high-performance culture. So with so much to hear about, we had better get started. This is Progressing Lives Everywhere with Professor Damien Hughes. So, Damien, thank you very much for joining us on Progressing Lives Everywhere. No, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's a real privilege to be at, so thank you for inviting me along. I know you've had a really interesting progression journey yourself, which has navigated its way through the corporate world and into sport and, and, and all kinds of other directions. So, for the benefit of our listeners, could you start with your version of progression? So, what has your progression journey been so far? Yeah, sure. So, I grew up in a city, Manchester, and I had a what you might describe as a bit of an unusual background. I grew up in a boxing gym long before I was born. My dad was a boxing coach and he founded a gym in in a city, Manchester. Now, like most people's preconceptions of boxing gyms are often based in inner city areas that can often be blighted by sort of economic difficulties. And that was certainly the case where we grew up. So there was one period in the early 2000s, for example, when it was rated as Europe's third poorest district. And that'll give you an idea of a lot of the social dysfunction that inevitably follows in environments like that. But it was home for me, it was where I grew up. And I think what that did in that environment was, it shaped me in two very distinct ways in terms of the career that I've gone on to do. I mean, one of the phrases that we often use in academia is that when we do, we don't do research, we do me-search where we try to understand and make sense of our life around us. And in relation to progressing lives, uh, these two factors have been a huge part for me. The first one was it gave me an understanding of the power of culture. This particular gym that my dad had founded was, as I've mentioned, based in quite an economically blighted community. But it was often seen as a sanctuary for an awful lot of people from that community to come and escape some of the difficulties of life. So. I would estimate that a large percentage, I'd estimate about 75% of the people that came in there never 
came in with an intention of stepping foot into a boxing ring. That wasn't the intent. They wanted to come in and find a place where, where they were treated with respect and courtesy, a place where they felt they could belong, a place where they felt safe. That was certainly the case within that environment. So in terms of culture, there's so many things that I've taken from it, like this idea of having a really clear uh, sense of purpose behind an organisation, having a really clear set of behaviours that people have to sign up to almost psychologically as membership. So a really simple example I'll give you is that in my dad's gym, bad language wasn't allowed. Mm. And that wasn't some kind of moral judgment. It was because one of the key non-negotiable behaviours was about discipline. So if you came into an environment and you didn't have the discipline to hold your tongue or find a, a, new, a different way of expressing it rather than just using swear words, that indicated a lack of discipline. So that was unacceptable. So having these kind of behaviours was really critical. And to give you a nice hint of that in terms of progressing lives, I think a few years ago, Manchester Council named a road in the area uh, after my father in tribute yeah. to the impact that it done. And I'd estimate that it was a really cold January afternoon when the council did it and the Lord Mayor came down to unveil it. And I'd estimate there was about 300 people came. And out of those 300 people, 90% of them had never boxed in their life, but they'd been members of the club. And what they came to acknowledge was the impact that that culture had had on them as people, as parents, as partners, and in their professional lives, how it had helped shape them. So I think to go back to the theme of the podcast around progressing lives, I was almost in a laboratory in many ways of yeah. seeing how you can create the conditions for people, regardless of status, rank, economic background or circumstances, to go on and understand the seeds of how they could progress life. I said there was two areas. The second area, though, was that there were people within that gym that did go on to become world boxing champions to reach the summit of their sport. And I think how that helped shape me was being around high performance from a very young age. And I think it gave me an appreciation of the work in the shadows, the sacrifice, the discipline, the dedication, and the sheer hard work and bloody-mindedness that goes into reaching the summit of whatever our sport is. And the great thing is, the people that were doing that were from that community and from that culture. It was a brilliant soundtrack to so many people's lives that they were hearing yeah. this message and being coming into an environment of progressing lives. And they had some brilliant examples, literally cheek to jowl with them, of people that had done precisely that and applied the lessons and been able to scale the heights. It's a great example of progressing lives and it clearly had a big impact on you. So where did you go from there, from, from that experience in the gym? Um, where did your journey go next? Yeah, so a lot of people always assume that because I grew up in a boxing gym that, that I would have boxed. My dad was really keen that that wasn't the case. I did box at an amateur level, but the purpose behind it was my dad always had the sense that education was the engine to change the world. There's a famous Nelson Mandela quote about that, about education is the only thing that can really make a difference to people progressing lives. And the father was absolutely adamant on that. So a bit of context about my dad. Uh, my dad was illiterate, so he'd grown up in post-war Manchester, and he'd had to teach himself to read and write when he reached adulthood. He had no 
formal education to speak of. I think part of that had shaped his view that education was a non-negotiable. So he didn't want us to pursue the route of going down the sport. He wanted us to go into academia and work as hard as we could and do as well uh, as we were capable of. So that took me down uh, the route of uh, organisational psychology and change, pursuing that. So I went to night school, did that at university. My wife, when I first met her, so she was my girlfriend then, she used to call me a secret geek because I didn't necessarily come from an environment where you would assume that I love reading and I was bookish and I enjoyed the research, but I did. But it took her a while to work it out that I never lost that love of learning and studying. I always felt lucky that I had the practical element of them being able to take the theory and apply it in practice uh, back where I grew up. So that sort of eventually I was lucky enough to, um, to be made a visiting professor at the University of Manchester around those subjects. But what I also did was I, I still kept on my coaching. So I was doing my uh, academic studies, but I was coaching in, in football and in boxing. So I was applying a lot of this stuff. I got to about the age of 25 and I had a moment of worrying what I would do with the rest of my life. It took me a while to sort of question that. I didn't know anybody that had worked in the corporate world, but I fancied sort of discovering more about it. It was my wife who she said to me, why don't you consider sort of applying for jobs in human resources? And I didn't know what human resources was, but she said, given my background in psychology and coaching, she felt that would probably be the easiest place for me to discover the corporate world. I ended up getting a job, a huge multinational company called Unilever, who I think they liked the unusual element of my background. And I can remember the conversation when uh, I told my mum that I was leaving uh, the world of coaching to go and do this job called Human Resources. And she said, what's that? And I said, I don't know. And my mum asked the question that only a mum can ask. She said, what are you going to do then when you get found out? So Brilliant. She, she was worried about, well, but when they discover that you don't know what you don't know, surely they're not going to tolerate you for long. So I literally went into the job anticipating that I'd get the tap on the shoulder when they realised that I didn't know what I was doing. And the only thing I had all that I committed to was I had a furious work ethic and I was prepared to learn. So I went back to night school and carried on my studies in organisational psychology specifically then to be able to aid what I was doing. And I was there for seven years. But what used to happen is after about a year to 18 months, I'd get a call off my boss and he'd say, oh, can I see? And it'd be arranging a time to go and meet him. And I was that naive. I genuinely, whenever I got the call, I used to anticipate that that was the day I was going to get sacked because I didn't know initially about employment law and you couldn't just do that to people. So I was naive enough and thought, this is the day where they've said, right, we've now realised you don't know what you don't know. You'll need to go. And every time I'd get the call and I'd turn up for the meeting, I kept getting promoted. When was the point then you started to think, OK, I might get promoted now and start fired and not fired? How many times did that have to happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the last job I did, I think what, what ended up happening was the Peter principle applied to me. I got promoted yeah. to my level of incompetence. So... The last job I got promoted to, I got made a HR director out in South Africa in the Middle East. And what I loved doing was the practical application of culture change and creating high performing cultures and getting my hands dirty and being at the coalface and, and implementing so much of the stuff I'd learned. 
And the last job I got was sat in meetings and boardrooms, debating strategies and practicalities of it. It was just a job where I just didn't enjoy it. I, I remember one day I was sat in a boardroom in Durban, in South Africa, and I remember it looked out over the Indian Ocean. I remember sat there thinking I'd give anything to be out there now. And when we yeah. sat about this boardroom, the conversation was about bechamel margarines. It's like flora margarine, but in the South Africa, it's called bechamel. And sales in the region had dipped by about 5%. And I looked at all my colleagues sat around the boardroom, and everyone looked devastated, and they were in sort of firefighting mode. And there wasn't an ounce of me that cared. Right. I just didn't care. It didn't have any impact on me. And I watched the debate sort of go around the room, and I knew it was going to reach me eventually. And I remember thinking to myself, how am I going to react here? Am I going to be honest and say, here's my ideas, but be a, a little bit nonplussed about it? And yeah. to my eternal shame, I didn't. I pretended to be as upset as everybody else was in the room. But that was the moment where I went home that evening and I was on my own in a, in a flat out there. And I remember thinking, I've got another 30 years here of being a fraud. And that thought frightened me. I was frightened of sort of sat in meetings pretending to care about something that really had no discernible impact or no significance to me. So that was the day that I mentally resigned. It took me a while to follow through and physically hand my resignation in. But I decided I wanted to get out, do what I was really passionate about. So I've been lucky enough by this stage. Uh, I've written my first book, a book called Liquid Thinking. And even the idea behind that book was blind faith, but it relates to this theme yeah. of progressing lives because when I, I was running a factory just outside of Liverpool in the north of England, and I was making culture, I was doing the cultural change piece that really made me passionate. And we'd managed to turn performance around in the factories quite significantly over a three-year period. And I knew my time was up in terms of leaving, and I wanted to give the guys the toolkit that they could sustain change and make it happen. When I started looking around for a book that had almost codified what we'd done, the books that I thought were relevant were either too academic, and these guys working in a factory environment didn't come from an academic background, so I knew they would never read it, or any books that I felt were too, too flimsy, they would be cynical about because they had a cynical nature, the vast majority of them. So I decided I was going to write the book myself. So I sat down and just wrote it, and I had no intention of writing it for an audience other than these 800 guys that I'd been working with for three years. So what I did was I made a list of people that I liked and admired, people like Richard Branson, Alex Ferguson, Muhammad Ali. And I worked on the idea that we're all six degrees of separation from anybody. So I made a list of who do I know that might know them. And I was fortunate enough, I got to go and interview these guys. So I was writing up my interviews and then it dawned on me one day, I, I shared some of the feedback with some of the guys from the factory and their cynical nature meant that whenever you said, listen, Richard Branson suggests this is a way of shaping a culture, they'd go, yeah, but what would he know? Because his parents were rich. So they, they had a way of dismissing or deleting information that didn't fit their worldview. And that was where I had the idea. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to interview guys from the factory and place their story alongside the likes of Richard Branson and Alex Ferguson. So there was a guy, for example, that he had no formal education to speak of. It was his ambition that his daughters would have a better chance than what he felt he'd had. 
to get his, children, his daughters into the best school in the area, he needed to move to a catchment area. He couldn't afford to do so. So what he ended up doing was, he, over a five-year period, he bought a plot of land and then built a family home on this plot of land that was in the catchment area that his daughters could get the education that he desired. Now, that, to me, was just an incredible example of somebody building an empire that stands merit with Richard Branson building his business empire. Yeah. So I told the story of Steve alongside him. And those stories were repeated. And then I self-published the book because no publisher was interested in it. And I wasn't really thinking of that anyway. And gave it out to all the guys in the factory. And that became their manual. So the guys were going and using it with, say, their children's football teams. Or some of the guys even ended up going to their wives' Weight Watchers classes and talking to them about the principles of change and how they could help them. And what had happened by that is, because it was such an unusual concept that you had a guy from HR writing a book for his, these guys that was turning performance around, it attracted a little bit of attention. So I was getting inquiries from people saying, can I have a look at this book, can I read it? I was sort of giving them away to people or any people that offered me a donation for it, I was giving it to the boxing club where I grew up from. And then what had happened was eventually, a publisher heard about it and came and said to me, can we buy it? We quite like the idea of it. At the time of this South African moment of realisation that I was at my level of incompetence, discovered that I really loved writing and loved going out there and trying to capture these lessons from what I was doing. And that had given me the idea that I needed to progress for myself by leaving and setting up my own consultancy, which went and did that. And nearly 16 years later, I'm still in my own consultancy, doing a lot of the same principles that excite me and uh, really energise me. Here we are today. That's a really inspiring story. I love the piece from the factory floor. I've got obviously progressing lives is our purpose. We're very, very passionate about purpose. And you can really see the purpose of that, that person in terms of wanting to give a better life to his daughters, etc. You can really see that come through. So that's a, that's a great example of a, a life being progressed there. And the other thing that really hit home with me as you were talking, you mentioned in your high performance podcast, which we'll come to in a minute, but success leaves clues. Your success, I would say I was hearing a lot about the amount you invested in learning and, and hard work, all this extracurricular stuff that you did to ultimately, presumably that played a pretty significant part in being able to put together a book and, and bring all these ideas together and turn them into practical application, practical action. Well, thank you. That's kind of, yeah. What I would say is, my naivety was my biggest strength when I started because if anyone would have sat me down and said, this is how to write a book, I honestly don't think I would have bothered if they'd have gone through all the demands and the, and the stipulations and the sheer hard work invested in it. And at that stage, I think I'd have probably had a million other things that I could have done and I'd have gone, oh, I'll, I'll leave it. But because I didn't know what I didn't know, that naivety mm. just meant that I just sort of, tried it because I was passionate about it. I had a reason for doing it. The experience of doing it taught me so much where I'm still learning now in terms of, I never quite have the courage to describe myself as an author because I feel like I'm winging it a little bit, a bit like my mum said, when are you going to get found out? Yeah. I sometimes still have that sense that I, I, I've not got any formal training in being an author. And I, I don't know if you can get formal training, but I feel like I'm, I'm fueling myself on passion and curiosity and naivety yeah. just to keep doing things that really excite me and energize me 
and, and that stayed with you all the time, all the way? I've tried to. I think there's a danger as we get older or we get more experiences that you can be a little bit more cynical or you can be a little bit knowing. I tried to guard against that. I think being naive and constantly being naive isn't that helpful. I think you have to assimilate your learning and get smarter next time and get better next time to progress. So you can't keep making the same mistakes over and over. But I also think that keeping a certain degree of sort of childish curiosity of being open to new experiences is really valuable. I've certainly found that for me. So I know we haven't mentioned it, but I co-host this podcast series called The High Performance Podcast. The seeds of that come out of curiosity, but naivety. So I don't really know what I'm doing. I've never done a podcast. I've certainly never hosted one. So I'm lucky that my friend and my colleague, Jake, that I do it with, is an experienced broadcaster. He's very skilled and talented at it. So that sort of reduced some of the anxiety I felt with it. I'm very aware that I'm stepping well outside my comfort zone in doing it. Mm-hmm. It's almost like doing interviews that you're publishing every week, research that that you do that. I think that can be an advantage that you don't shut anything down quickly. That naivety still keeps yeah. doors open for you and gives you the curiosity and the courage to sometimes just step out and give it a go. Absolutely. So one thing we're always interested to know from our guests is what does progression mean to you? That's a brilliant question. The reason I say it's a brilliant question is because I think I've gone back and revised my judgment of it. I think when I was younger, I think progression was constantly doing more, achieving more, getting better. It was that phrase I've repeated there. It was always about the word more was in it. And I think eventually that leads to a pretty unhealthy place that you're constantly chasing bigger and better. I'll be happy when. The reason I, I say this is that it took me a few times to learn the lesson. You know, it's all saying that that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And I obviously wasn't ready. So I've had a couple of occasions in my life where being driven by, by this idea of doing more, achieving more, the next thing, the next thing, when I get the next thing and things like that, has led me into some pretty dark places, if I'm honest. I ended up contracting meningitis on one of those occasions. And it was because I basically worked myself to a frazzle. I hadn't been particularly kind to myself. It was about the relentlessness of just get on with it, go on, keep going, stop making excuses, don't whinge. That led me to ignoring alarm bells that were saying, you're burnt out, you're frazzled, you're at your wit's edge. When I ended up getting ill, the doctor had said to me, he said, you were going to get ill with something because your immune system was that depleted that you've just ignored and neglected yourself, and you're just unlucky, you got meningitis. And I think that was a huge lesson for me in terms of stop chasing the next thing and the next thing, and sometimes I think progress is just just being happy with where you are, what you've got, and the moment that you're in, and starting to be a little bit more appreciative of what I do have. I mean, another big thing for me is that in that time, I've I, I become a father. So I've got two children now, my son who's 11 and my daughter who's eight. And I think that's been a significant moment then, having sort of taken myself to the edge of breakdown, to use that phrase, mm. is that I remember speaking to a doctor who said to me, the way that you speak to yourself, how would you handle it if someone spoke to your children in that same way? 
I'm not afraid to say. It made me quite emotional that the thought that the example I was giving my kids was cruel and unforgiving because they were seeing the way I was treating myself. It, it's abhorrent that they would ever speak to somebody like that, but more significantly that they would treat speak to themselves like that. That's the moment when the teacher appeared for me. I was ready to understand that my children don't follow a hypocritical father. They don't do what I say, but not do what I do. And that was the moment when I thought, you need to start finding contentment and happiness in the moment you're in, not constantly feeling that progress is about the next thing and the next thing. It's yeah. about being happy in your current state. It's a really powerful definition, really powerful interpretation. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Just looking at the High Performance Podcast then, we're always interested to know how our guests are progressing the lives of others. Now, this is a great example of progressing lives on a, on a grand scale. It's, a, it's an excellent podcast series. How would you say that you are progressing lives with this podcast series that you're doing? First of all, thank you. I really appreciate your kind comments because it, it goes back to what I said earlier. I'm very aware that I'm out on the edge in many ways with this, that it's something I've never done before. So I'm learning and it's in a relatively public environment of having to learn lessons as we go along. Yeah. But one of the big drivers for both myself and Jake, uh, my co-host, was that if I give you a bit of context, so I've explained a bit about my background. I've grown up around high performance since I was a child and a lot of my work, uh, certainly in the last six or seven years, has been working in sort of elite environments, both in business, but also in a lot of sporting environments. I've come at high performance from the point of view of being a practitioner in it. Jake has been a very successful broadcaster. So we covered Formula One for the BBC for uh, seven years. And now he's the lead anchor for uh, BT Sports with their Premier League and European football coverage. Jake tells the anecdote that he used to be in like the Formula One grid lanes and he'd be meeting like the drivers or the billionaire team bosses. And he always assumed that it was some kind of secret that they knew that nobody else was aware of. And he'd ask them, what's the secret? What is it? How, how do you get here and belong? And what he eventually came to realise was there was no secret. It was all the things about hard work, commitment, sacrifice, backing yourself, self-belief, all those different factors. And so Jake had seen it from that perspective. I'd seen it from, from inside the dressing room, inside the environments, and seeing exactly what I said earlier. There's no secret. The work in the shadows will reveal itself in the light. So when we both saw it, we thought it would be helpful if we could do a series of interviews with the lead performers that just took the mysticism away from it and say there is no secret to this. These are all the principles that you can take and you can apply and assimilate in your own life, wherever you are, and you can use it to progress it. That was our intent behind it. But to do that, we were really clear at the start of this that we wanted to give this information away for free. So we're not trying to monetize it. We're not. I feel comfortable talking to you about it because yeah. I don't feel I'm selling it to anybody. You're saying to people, this information's out there. It's on YouTube or you can download it on the podcast and it's all for free. And it's basically elite performers saying to you, there's no secret when this is my story and these are ideas that have helped me. Maybe they can help you. And that really taps into this sense of purpose for me, yeah. if I'm honest, Andrew, because it, I love the idea of making a positive difference. My dad used to say this to me in the boxing gym. 
whenever he steps into the boxing ring or whenever he walks into a new job, he'd say, if you don't make a positive difference, nobody will notice your absence. If you're not there to contribute something, when you leave, nobody will know because you've been an irrelevance to them. So a big driver for me is about this idea of making a positive difference. And I think the podcast is just the opportunity to get it out to as wide an audience as possible. And I think what both Jake and myself get satisfaction from is we'll get messages from people that are maybe using it with their children or teachers are talking about using the lessons in the classroom. Or, you know, we've had people during the lockdown period contact us to say how helpful it's been getting them through some quite dark moments and that's the work in the shadows to me yeah. that's the stuff that really really taps into a deep well of satisfaction internally with me that you feel that I'm, I'm lucky enough to have had that conversation we've got the means to be able to put it out there but hearing that it can make a difference to somebody's life is the ultimate satisfaction for me so is that your purpose then, would you say, as obviously to be progressing lives everywhere, would you say yours is to be making a positive difference? Absolutely. I like that Jim Collins idea of your core remains pretty much immutable. The strategy might have to change. And I think that everything I've been lucky enough to do with my life, so whether it's working in the boxing gym where I grew up or whether it was then changing to go into the corporate world for a while and do high performance culture stuff or whether it was writing the books or now doing the podcast or working with sports teams i think the strategy might be different but the core at the heart of it is you're there to make a positive difference to people's lives and help them understand their own potential and how they can tap into it so that to me is entirely consistent all the way through i was going to say my adult life but i've gone back a little bit further than that to even being a child and mm. that's always been there and once you've discovered it, it's just finding the means to be able to live your core, your sense of purpose. Have you been surprised by the content? Because I, I have to say I was. Some of the interviews I've listened to, I was really struck by some of the content. Has that exceeded your expectations? Like who, for example? I'm interested in who really surprised you? Well, the Johnny Wilkinson one, I know he's been much talked about. And we're, we're all in... Yeah, you know, different environments, but this you know, this high performance, high expectation environment. And he was in obviously in an elite environment, but you can listen to it and you can relate to a lot of it. It takes some listening to. I've had a couple of couple of goes yeah. on it. But yeah, that content was he was displaying huge levels of vulnerability and openness in that. He didn't have to turn up and do that. That that's the first one I listened to. And it right. just really surprised me. In a positive way, it surprised me. So yeah, that was one. The Matthew McConaughey one was was really enjoyable. You know, I thought he, he obviously brought a lot to it as well. So it really has, as I said, the content has, has surprised me in a very positive way. Yeah, well, thank you. I'd echo your sentiments on it that there has been some that have surprised me myself. So the Johnny Wilkinson one, I think the overriding emotion I felt when we chatted with him was I felt a real sense of humility and I felt incredibly privileged because he came into that room and as you as you say, for anyone that hasn't heard it, we hardly spoke about rugby, which is where his whole reputation has been forged. But we spoke about the mental health challenges it, it, and the struggles he'd had and the lessons he'd learned and how his perspective on life is very different today. 
and as you say, you use that lovely phrase there, Andrew, that it was just, it took courage to be able to open up and speak with such vulnerability about that. I remember sat there thinking, I feel really privileged that you've chosen to do this with us. And I feel quite humbled to be in your presence when you're doing it. So I suppose those emotions surprised me because meeting him, that wasn't what I expected mm. to feel. I thought I'd come away admiring him or really being in a little bit awed at his achievements and his work ethic, but I didn't feel those feelings for those reasons. I felt awed and touched by him in his openness. So, yeah, they have surprised me. And I think the bit that really does surprise me is there's no one way, and I think this is something that Jake and myself say that, we're not there to say to you, here's the formula, because there is no formula. I think hearing people get there in their own way and their own journeys that, that they're doing is probably the most surprising element of, of our reflections from it, that, that everybody's on their own journey with their own baggage, doing it in the best way that they can. So I'll give you an example, though. There's an interview that we did with one guy that hasn't gone out yet. One of the questions we ask is, what are your non-negotiable behaviours? Uh, so what are the behaviours that people have to buy into that you stand for? It's another way of saying, like, what are your values? What, uh, when we talk about non-negotiable behaviours, it becomes more tangible. We interviewed Sia Khaleesi, who was a South African rugby captain, who was the first black man to win the Rugby Union World Cup. And the first non-negotiable behaviour he described was kindness. So we've spoken about kindness here, and he spoke about kindness was a non-negotiable in his world. And this is a beast of a man in many ways, like a, a formidably athletic specimen that is in the business of hurting people in the nature of his job. And he sat there saying kindness is non-negotiable. There's another interview we did with a guy who is non-negotiable was selfishness. So you've got to be selfish to do what I do. Now, the important point is there's no judgment being applied to me by me to either of them because who am I to judge and my question is do those behaviours help you or hinder you and for both of them they've gone no no those behaviours help me and I think that's important to recognise that the surprising thing is there is no formula for any of this stuff everybody is finding their own way absolutely your own unique code your own unique formula well thanks yeah. for sharing your story of progression it's been really interesting inspiring Fantastic. And I highly recommend the High Performance Podcast for anyone that wants to go on a journey of progression. It will certainly help them. It certainly helped me. Damien, once again, thank you very much for, for joining the podcast. It's been a privilege. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Progressing Lives Everywhere, brought to you by Moria Bond. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to subscribe, like and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the podcast. For more information on Amoria Bond's specialist services and to access the podcast show notes, head over to amoriabond.com. Join us next time as we continue to progress lives everywhere.